on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third lawn? This is the working part. Be advised, we have a woman trapped on the balcony on the fourth floor alpha bubble corner. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the alpha side. Welcome to another episode of 15 Minutes with Dr. Chuck. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. That's always great to have you. I want to talk to you about firefighter stress. I want to define some of the things that we can change in the fire service if we identify them. What are some of the stresses for a firefighter on the job on a daily basis? Well, there's two kinds of stress. Main, mainly, there's stress from the job itself. It's, it's stressful to fight fires. Uh, there's the physical stress involved. But there's psychological stress involved, which comes from conflicts within your life. So stress comes from issues that you're unable to figure out how to resolve. If you have financial problems, if you have substance abuse issues, uh, marital issues, problems with your kids. So there's a number of factors in everybody's life that uh, create what we call stress. And stress is, is a psychological issue that causes physical reactions. I mean, you have, uh, you have emotional issues that go on and, and uh, anxiety, for example, is a, is a reaction to stress. I can speak for myself and I can speak for some of my friends. So firefighter stress is something that doesn't always pertain to the job itself. It could be other factors. Home life could be organizational stress, like just the department you work at is going through some changes. But a bunch of us went to 9-11, and I noticed the years coming out of that. Being a firefighter was very different. I, I want to say that you maybe you were respected differently, or I, I want to say that there was a change on the public side perception. I noticed that after 9-11, it felt good to be a firefighter. And I know that might sound awful. The fire service after 9-11 was, was very different. And I'm not quite sure why that was. Again, I think it's a, a cultural shift in attitude. Whether the, the attitude toward firefighters was negative, I, I doubt that it was very negative, unlike law enforcement. But the, in fact, that probably has gotten worse since 9-11. It, it's the veterans, I think, have experienced this. Vietnam veterans, uh, it was, it was uh, a horrible thing to, to be a veteran uh, in, in 1970. When you were, after, after uh, the first Gulf War, things changed, and now it was, it was a, a great thing. So if you were a veteran, you know, you were, you were a good guy. And I think the same thing has, has happened for firefighters after 9-11. How does a culture keep that momentum going in its community? How does a fire department keep that momentum going? How do they keep the perception that they're doing a great job really high in their community? That happens with uh, just what, the, what people observe. I, I, I think in general, people want heroes. They want to find somebody that, that they can look up to and they want to find heroes in their life. You know, as long as firefighters are doing good things out there, I think they'll maintain that. I think one of the things, police officers too, I think one of the things that those two professions have is they have an amazing ability to mentor 
kids. Like I know the moment that I wanted to be a firefighter, I was in a very bad way in a very bad part of the city, sitting on a bus stop when a fire engine drove by with a firefighter on the back who decided to give me a smile. And I, when I saw him at 13 years of age, he, that was a superhero. Like he, to me was like, that was Superman. And I thought, I really want to be that. I want to be a firefighter. And it hit me like a lightning bolt as I was sitting on a bus stop and I never, ever let it go. And once I became a firefighter, I didn't feel like that, but I have to say, I definitely felt good about myself every morning I put my uniform on. There are very few professions you can do where you can help someone on a daily basis when they're having their worst day. And you can sometimes make it a little better. That's a pretty special job to have. What you just described is a perfect example of uh, you had an instant attitude change. You changed your mind about yourself when that firefighter smiled at you. You, you shifted gears at that moment and you changed the direction of your life. You, ch you changed the path that you were on. Yeah, that's how powerful one person smile while he's driving by to a little kid sitting on a bus stop. He changed his life. May have even have saved it because I was definitely in a bad way in those days. Well, well, see, let me let me fine tune that just a little bit. He didn't change your life. He changed your mind. He changed your attitude, and you're the one who changed your life. You you took it upon yourself to become a firefighter. I wonder how. You get your firefighters to look at that opportunity every day they go out. Acknowledge as firefighters, well, I'm in management, but how do our firefighters practice understanding the ability they have to make a difference in someone's life? How do you get firefighters to change their mind or have a positive attitude rather than a negative one? Is that fair? Yes, exactly it. Make a difference every opportunity they get when they put that uniform on. Make a difference. Well, the question I would have is what stops you from changing your mind and making a difference? What, what is in the way of doing those kind of things that, you know, at smiling at little kids on a bus stop, what stops you from doing that sort of thing? Your wife yelled at you before you went to work. You have a buddy dying of cancer. You, there's things in your life that might, very good. Okay. See, that's the myth. That's the illusion that occurs in our culture. And that's what we call the blame game. Your attitude is not controlled by anything outside of yourself. There's a great book. I've never read the book. I love the title. And so I recommend the title to everybody. And that is, what other people think of you is none of your business. For a daily practice, to go to work, put our uniforms on and make a difference is to every moment of every day we're to be in the now. And then maybe we should be looking for opportunities. Again, the, the cultural uh, dysfunction, I call it. I think the important issue is to not get trapped in the blame game. In other words, you wake up, your wife yells at you, and then you go to work with a bad attitude now because she yelled at you. And you, you use the blame game and say, well, she made me mad. She made me angry because she yelled at me. Well, that's a myth. There's no such thing as make. Okay. You made yourself angry. You gave yourself a negative attitude because you've got a rule in your head that says she shouldn't yell at me. 
So you go to work mad because she's not allowed to yell at you. Does that fit? Does that make sense? It does, but how do we change that? My kids did something that I'm really disappointed in. My wife yelled at me. I'm in debt. I'm unhappy. Put a positive spin on my life. How do I do that? Well, the question is, what, what is the, what's the problem? That's what I would ask you. So you got debt problems. So you kids are screwing up. So what, what, why do you have to have a bad attitude driving to work, walking into that fire station? Is it a light switch? Is it something that we should be able to flick on and off? No, very good. That is a habit. We have been trained since we were little kids. You know, you hear, you hear, you know, when you're, when you're five years old, you're, you hear, you make me so mad. And so kids are, you know, they don't know any better. They think they have the power to make mom mad. And that's the problem is, is that issue of blame. It's, it's, uh, you know, my, my kids used to say, dad, you make me so mad. And I said, well, I believe that you're mad at me, but I'm not willing to take responsibility for how you make yourself feel. It's a work in progress. And that's, that's, it takes a lot of habit to break this, this, this blame game. It, it, it takes a lot of mental judo and a lot of thought stopping and a lot of, uh, and again, one of the best techniques is coming into the now. If you can come into the now, then all of that stuff goes away. That anxiety can't exist in the now. Mental judo, so practicing it over and over and over oh, again. Yeah. Well, you do it. You, 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 you mentioned it before that, you know, when you get up in the morning, you smile. That's a mental judo. That's, you know, you, you talk to yourself in a positive way. And you end up with a positive attitude and then you get to work and something goes south. Okay. But now you deal with that, but you don't, you don't have to uh, think that my day went to heck. Um, and, and so therefore it's all, it's all bad, you know? Okay. So something went bad. So what? I had a cool technique. A clinical counselor taught me many years ago. I had a really nasty call. It was a murder. Um, it was unexpected. That's one of the things about going to a call when you get blindsided and you don't know what it is. You don't prepare yourself. And it was a, there was kids involved and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And uh, she showed me this stop sign trick. She made me think of a stop sign. So when I laid in bed, I'd imagine the stop sign. She had me draw it and do all this uh, visualizations of the stop sign, every detail, and she goes, I want you, when those thoughts come, I want you to immediately think of that stop sign. And after a few weeks, I stopped fixating on that call and the images that I saw. And it was, it was a trick. I practiced it multiple times in a day. And then my mind, I guess, just did it all on its own. I didn't have to think about it anymore. That's right. It's, it's like uh, when, when you're driving a, a, a vehicle with a uh, manual transmission, you have struggle with how do you get it shifting from one gear to the next at first when you're 16 years old. And then pretty soon after you're about 30, you can probably chew gum and shift gears at the same time. So that stuff goes automatic. Typing is another example. You don't have to stop and be conscious of each letter. When you're, when you're typing, your fingers know where to go because that's what we call automated. That's the subconscious taking that stuff into the automated room. And that's, and that's what you, you're, you're doing when you're 
doing that that stop sign technique's beautiful. It's a it's a thought stopping, good symbol, and and it brought you into the now. It stopped you from thinking about the past. You were time traveling when you were thinking about those kids and thinking about the past. It wasn't real. It wasn't in that room with you at that moment. And, and that's a beautiful technique. But again, it didn't work the first time, did it? You have to keep doing it over and over and over again, and then it automates. So if we're trying to go to work and have a great day, we have to set up some sort of routine for ourselves and something that works for us. And we got to practice it every morning. And we start with making our bed. That's right. That's exactly right. You, you start out with a positive attitude. And, and again, uh, expect the fact that something could go bad. The problem that, that we also have in our culture is that we catastrophize too much. Oh, it's terrible that I had to go on that call where there was a murmur. What was so bad about it? That would be my challenge to you. Is why, why, why was it so bad? Well, it makes you think about death and that's right. mortality. And, you know, I, I like to believe things happen for a reason. But when I see that, I don't. I don't believe that happened for a reason. Well, I struggle with why it happened. So it, it brings all these questions up about humanity and they're it triggers dark thoughts. And unless you have a clinical counselor that you can sit down and they can get inside your head and help you wrap your thought process around what happened there, that you didn't have anything to do with that. You know, you did witness it, but really it has nothing to do with how you live your life. And it's for people that have never experienced clinical counseling or talk to a professional or a psychologist like yourself, they won't understand that. They'll just process their way through it the way they do. It'll build up with a whole bunch of other calls. And over time, if, you know, if it gets bad enough, it'll come out in another way, like it did for me. Couldn't get out of bed one day. The point is that by you changing your mind, you know, it was ugly and nasty, but it wasn't a catastrophe. It wasn't awful. It wasn't terrible. It was, you know, it, because it, you, you said it a moment ago, it reminds you of your kids that are that age. It reminds you of, of the mortality and the death issues that's, that you may or may not have a philosophy. And I, and I would suggest that you just mention that. Your, your, your philosophy about what's the meaning? Why, is, why are we here? What's the point of this? That's where you struggle. And anybody who struggles with this stuff is not, does not have a philosophy about death that serves them. And that's what you need to get some help with is get somebody to help you. And, and again, the key here is don't go have somebody tell you what your philosophy is. You've got to find somebody who is going to help you get inside your head and find your answers because they're, they're not out there. There's no book out there you can read to fix this. You've got to find it in your, in yourself. Yeah. Everybody's got to build their own plan. And I was super fortunate that I, I have had some great clinical counselors in my life and they're all different. They all have different ideas, but they're all trying to get you to figure out yourself. They're not giving you 10 items to work on. They're figuring out what your triggers are, what you're about, what your thought process is, and then they're helping you build a plan. And if you're with a psychologist or a clinical counselor, that's not doing that and you don't feel connected, you should get one that you feel connected with. That'll help you with that. Well, you, you, you really nailed it right there. 
it's it's not so much about connecting, but it's a matter of, of when you go to somebody, is this person getting in my head and helping me figure out my philosophy? Or is that person giving me some techniques, like the thought, you know, like the stop sign is a technique, uh, uh, meditation is a technique, EMDR are techniques, but they're not therapy. Those are, those are simply technical uh, methods. They work, and, and, and they're good to, to use, but they don't fix it. Those are just, they're covering up and, and uh, helping you reduce some symptoms. But you've got to go in and find why you're having the symptoms, and that's the job of the, of the therapist, not the technician. I think every fire department really needs to look at their EAP programs or their mental health programs and try and empower firefighters to go on a regular basis, whether that be every month or every couple months. Because I really think the thing that's missing in the fire service and policing, just general maintenance, keep Absolutely. learning. Absolutely. I, and, and I would approach it from, from an EAP perspective or a peer support team. I, I think that it would be uh, to do it from what I call psychoeducation. You don't want to go in and say, we're going to have five or six people here. We're going to meet, but is, this is group therapy. I would get into uh, teaching people about how the, the brain works. How, how does this stuff work? And, and give them an opportunity to, um, to learn. So psychoeducation is a big factor, I think, in, in uh, you know, demystifying mental health and getting rid of the stigma that it's not a, a weakness to, to get some counseling. It's a strength to be vulnerable and tell people, I'm feeling this way, I don't feel good. That's a strength, that's a yeah. quality in in people, not just firefighters, but in the fire service and policing, we weren't taught to do that. So we, that stigma is, is, is very strong, still is. You have people like myself, yourself. I know so many firefighters are out there being vulnerable and saying, you know, if you want help, give me a call. I'll help you find someone. It's okay. Like you have a lot, the language has changed in the last 10 years to it's okay. It's understandable. It makes sense that you're not feeling well. That's right. In other words, the, the message is that it's not weakness or it's not a bad thing to have emotions, whether they're positive or negative. Emotions are not a weakness. They're simply a signal to you that there's something going on. And if you're having a negative emotion, it's a, it, you have a conflict with reality. In other words, your brain is telling you, wait a minute, this isn't right. There's something wrong here. And it's, it, your gut is screaming at you. I try to teach people to always trust their gut. That gut feeling is real. You're not pretending to have it. You're not imagining it. And when you have a negative emotion, listen to it. But so many times people will, you know, they, they, they want to get a, you know, rent a new, new apartment or something. And, and they want to go there, but something's kind of gnawing at them, some little negative emotional experience with it. And they don't listen to that. And they realize that this is, you know, I'm going to do it anyway. And so those mixed emotions we have about things, when you don't listen to the negative, um, you, you make mistakes. So one of the ways to change 
your attitude and have a great day for those that are struggling with that is to find a clinical counselor to help you with that. That's one way. Some people might be struggling where they will feel they can't build their own plan. That's where the clinical counselor comes in. That's right. But you can build your own plan. You're strong enough to do it. You just have to realize that. Well, if, 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 you, if you sprain your ankle, you might not need to seek medical uh, attention. But if you've got, you know, uh, a, a major uh, bone break when you do your ankle, uh, if it breaks a bone, then seeking help is not a weakness. Going to the doctor to get your, your ankle fixed is not a weakness. Why do we have this attitude in our culture that says it's, um, it's okay to get help for a physical injury but not for psychological, for emotional issues. It was when the fire departments and police departments were full of bravado and everybody walked around and there was this aura about being strong and you know what, you can take it. And if that bothered you, have a couple drinks. And that's, right. that's the culture that has changed. But what has changed with the culture is yeah, maybe you're not having a couple drinks anymore, but it's still there. Those people are still there. I was one of them. I looked at clinical counseling was for the week. I looked at clinical counseling being for the week, the week firefighter, the ones that needed help. I felt bad for them. So I was that guy. And, and, and your current endeavors, these podcasts, the things that you're doing right now to demystify mental health is probably a very heroic thing for you to be doing you know what talking about mental health was very hard at the beginning i had a very good friend of mine you know really i want to say pressure but wasn't pressure it was encourage me to walk out on a stage and talk about depression and talk about suicide and talk about intervention and talk about how i felt and some of the challenges in my career, very hard. I don't know if it was heroic, but it was, certainly was hard the first time. These podcasts, just doing these is a type of therapy for me. I bet it is. You bet. You bet. You know, I get to talk about how I feel and make, I feel like I'm making a difference. And, you know, I, one of my kids was struggling not so long ago and I said, you need to go help someone. You need to go dish out some food at a homeless shelter. And, and they thought it was because they, they're, you know, I have this little saying, if your glass is half full, pour it into a smaller glass. Now it's full. Change your perception. And if you go serve food at a soup kitchen, it's not about serving the food and that people are worse off than you. It's that you're actually helping someone. Feels good. That's Feels right. really good. That's right. Well, because you have a rule in your head that says, I like to help people. That's what firefighters are all about. And, and again, if you feel good about something, it's because it's in harmony with your attitude and your beliefs, your morality. If you have a negative emotion, it's in conflict. So when you do something that violates your rules, you're going to feel bad. If you, have, uh, if you do something that's in harmony, you're going to feel good. It's a very simple formula. It's not any more complex than that. Well, it took me a lot of years to actually put it into motion. So I know there's a lot of people out there that haven't been able to do it. So one of the things you can do if you want to change your life tomorrow is change the way you think. That's right. Build a routine in the morning. Start with a positive attitude. And there's a very good chance you'll have a 
great day. And it's, and it's very simple. You start with, I'm going to change my mind about this. Well, not necessarily. There's some good things I wouldn't change my mind. With. I, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't change my mind about that. Well, that wraps up another edition of 15 Minutes with Dr. Chuck and Fire Psychology. I, I, I really appreciate uh, your allowing me to help and do this. Thanks for listening and helping us crush the stigma when it comes to mental health. Thank you.